0: brass and Carson Sestouli, this is Fangraph Studio, my guest on this edition of Fangraph Studio, making his weekly Monday appearance on a Monday, it's his weekly Monday appearance, and has occurred in this case on a Monday, is the managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest and on this edition of the program, as he does every week. Dave Cameron endeavors to analyze all baseball, of particular note in this case, Dave Cameron has begun publishing his trade value series, his annual trade value series, and that serves as the foundation for the entire discussion to follow. I asked Cameron not only about the identity of specific players, uh, who he's either included or excluded, for example, what makes Jake Lamb 50th and not another player 50th in the trade value series, why is Clayton Kershaw not included, why hasn't he been included for some time, and also what, uh, what causes a player like Bryce Harper or Josh Donaldson, who ranked in the teens... During last year's edition of the Trade Value Series, to uh, to become omitted from it entirely. Those are I ask him about specific players. I ask him about general principles. For example, how have recent trades, how have trades in the past calendar year, how have they changed his approach to the Trade Value Series? For example, the trade of Chris Sale for Yoon Mankata, among others. The trade of Adam Eaton to the Washington Nationals for assorted prospects. The trades also of Araldus Chapman and Andrew Miller. Short-term relief trades short-term relievers short-term you understand what i'm saying all that is included in what follows also dave cameron relates a fraught anecdote about an awkward encounter he had with vangrath's contributor eno saris on the company elevator
1: like i can't ignore that right like i can't just pretend that that didn't happen
0: that's sensitive information and other sensitive information like it and what's to follow what's occurring right now is simply a reminder that Fangraphs memberships exist for a reasonable fee or sum for a reasonable sum readers of Fangraphs.com listeners of Fangraphs Audio can support the great work that occurs at the website and less the podcast but definitely the website by acquiring a Fangraphs membership and for a slightly less reasonable sum but not entirely unreasonable sum those same Fangraphs readers and Fangraphs Audio listeners can acquire an ad-free membership which allows one to browse Fangraphs.com Without the burden of banner ads Terrible burden of banner ads Allowing for faster loading speeds And also emancipating one From the distortive effects of advertising And with that advertisement Having concluded, we can now turn to a conversation To our conversation What is it? It is Fangraph's audio Who does the feature? Managing editor of Fangraph's Dave Cameron And when does it begin? Right now case dave cameron uh for our conversation this week actually i actually have some real questions because i'm uh, well you've released your uh, the beginning of your trade value series that's the point i have and uh it's something that both uh, answers questions uh, but also creates more questions um because there's a lot going on and i you can only address so much of it in your by way of your methodology and this, you know the specific points you make about all the players. I assume.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's only so much time to talk about. I mean, we're talking about 50 guys plus whatever the 30 honorable mentions or something, and like mm-hmm. <laughs> there are a lot of people who you know could have an argument for being a, uh, on the list. And like the last few spots on the list are certainly, um, uh, I don't know, interchangeable probably with a lot of the honorable mentions. So. Well, you mentioned
0: that with regard to uh, who is number 50, Jake Lamb. Yeah. yeah, Jake Lamb, and I think you mentioned. The effect effective. Hey, this could be a bunch of other guys. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah. and I—is I, it something like I know when uh, like Eric Laganegan or whatever is doing, you know, like his top 100 list, or how you know it's there's like a million. You know, the first guy, in and in fact, the first guy is Yon Mankata on, on his you know on his uh, preseason list. It was. And he was like, "This is for me. This this guy is a tier above everyone else." And I think you even mentioned that when you were discussing Makara. But the hundredth guy could be a bunch of different people. Yeah, identity. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think that's the thing with like numerical lists. Like people love them. Like this is like the everyone's favorite content. Is I love things.
0: I love. I like numerical lists. Yeah. I mean, it's just
1: like internally we like them, but Mm -hmm. they are they actually obscure information in some ways. Like the tier system is clearly better, right? Like Mm -hmm, if we did like a future values trade value series where I did, like, the 20 to 80 scale, it would mm-hmm. provide more information. People would like it less. It would get less traffic. People would complain and say, can we just have a top 50 again? Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the tiering and saying, like, all these guys are the same tells you more than, you know, oh, this guy's 47 and this guy's 44. Well, how close do you think they are? I don't know, right? And so, like, it's actually ordinal rank is a really bad tool for something like this. But people love it anyway, and I am not one to try and change human nature.
0: No, I don't I don't think people have had much
1: success with that. No, yeah. <laughs> I mean I actually have tried to like move people away from ordinal rank with other things with handgraphs, and every time I've done it, people are like, I just want to see the list.
0: Yeah. It yeah, it's interesting. I think probably as I I, and I don't know if this point is of interest to anyone. It's mostly observing something that has occurred inside of me. But as I've spent more time, at any graphs, and, th- and I'm compelled to think about baseball with more frequency, uh, I start to say, "Oh, you know, maybe the addition of more nuance would be important here." But I know that when I'm when I am, um, for example, thinking about another discipline. So for you know, like Callie and I, at at one point we thought, "Well, what uh, what movie should we watch?" And uh, we say, we want to watch a horror film. And then I look up 10 best horror films of 2017 or whatever. Do you know what I mean? I don't want necessarily tons of nuance. I want someone to have curated a list. (laughs) Tell you what to do. Yeah, yeah, in his or her opinion, the top 10 horror movies from the last year. And that's all I want, you know? So I imagine that for those people who certainly are interested in baseball and are interested in this sort of methodology, but at the same time, like, don't want to contend... And we're talking... I mean, I'm making a really... I'm, I'm really... <laughs> I'm trying to... I'm making a dumb point about an important human concept, I think. But the point is that there's only there's only so much space for nuance in all of our lives when we're contending with things that are not, you know, necessary, I suppose.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think you have to, at the end of the day, sit down and ask, like, what's the goal of this, right? And so, like, these guys aren't getting traded, right? like, Like, uh, you know... We're not going to see uh, Aaron Nola traded for Jake Lamb. That's not going to happen, right? Like, mm-hmm. this is an exercise in hypotheticals and speculation. <clears throat> this is um, an entertainment exercise, for better or worse, right? Like, mm-hmm. we're talking about the trade value of 48 guys who won't get traded, plus Jose Quintana and, you know, maybe one or two other guys on the list gets moved, but probably not. Most of these guys aren't going anywhere. So if we're speculating about the trade value of guys who won't be traded... The actual function of this list is just to cause us... It's a thought exercise, right? It's to help us engage in the game in a, in a week where the baseball takes a week off and gives you an all-star game and a home run derby and not a lot else. Um, so it engages us with baseball at a time when maybe baseball disengages with us a little bit. And also, I think it's it's enjoyable. So yeah. if you say, like, this is an entertainment product, and I don't think there's any question. Like, the Trade Value Series is an entertainment product. It is something we produce at Fangraphs that hopefully you enjoy, hopefully... Um, you you look forward to it and you read all the articles. Um, we're not putting this forward as like strenuous new research that will cause you to see the game in a different way. It's a, it's something that's like, oh, yeah, I get to think about baseball when there's not a baseball on. And this is kind of a fun thing to think about.
0: Yeah. And, and in a moment, I actually want to get to – you mentioned Quintana. I want to get to some actual trades that have maybe – Well, I suppose this happens every year. It forced you to to reimagine how you how you construct it. First, I want to just I want to establish one thing, right? Which is, um, with regard to this list, again, you you suggest it's a thought exercise. Most of these are hypothetical. What you are saying, what you are attempting to comment on, is not necessarily Dave Cameron's assessment of these players. Uh, You are you are attempting to synthesize. the what the the actions and the performances and the projections uh, of these players and and rel- you know also relative to their contracts and then your you're, so your your basic contention would be uh, you could trade the, the number the guy who's number one on this list for a little bit more than you could trade the guy who's number two for a little bit more than the guy who's number three et cetera et cetera how it would happen in reality as opposed to necessarily like orthodox. FanGraphs assessments of players.
1: Yeah, absolutely. This is not a uh, ranking of like surplus value. I mean, you'll see times where you know we have the five year <coughs> five year Zips projections listed along with the player's salaries. Like Marcus Stroman is ranked uh, ahead of James Paxton, despite the fact that like Zips thinks Paxton is clearly better. Is not a big fan of Marcus Stroman at all. Um, and so you know we're not just looking at this and being like, yeah, according to this algorithm that we calculated, this is what FanGraphs says. These are the fifty most valuable players according to us. This is based on discussions with people in the game. This is based on um, looking at what's actually happened and trying to make inferences based on what teams have actually done and, and the public statements and who's actually been made available in certain trades. Um, if it was me, like, you know, I spent all winter trying to tell everyone who would listen to sign Justin Turner. And, like, Justin Turner, to me, was the best free agent available on the market this winter. And that he signed for $64 million I thought was completely crazy pants. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to putting the trade value series together, I don't know... And I almost put Justin Turner on the list anyway. Like, I came pretty close to just telling teams, like, you screwed up. Justin Turner's awesome. Um, But we just had 30 teams having the opportunity to sign Justin Turner. And they decided his market value was a little bit more than Chase Headley's. Like, I can't ignore that, right? Like, I can't just pretend that that didn't happen and say, like, Justin Turner is better than you think. Like, obviously, he probably gave the Dodgers some kind of hometown discount. He's a California kid, went to school in California. Like, it's likely that there was some, uh, hey, I just want to play for the Dodgers. But if someone would have offered Justin Turner five years and 100000000 million, I'm pretty sure he would have taken it. Like, the hometown discount doesn't extend to 30 or $40 million when you're signing a $60 million deal. And what's he been worth already this year? I mean, he's been a a four-and-a-half-win player, so... 35 million dollars or something mm-hmm. like uh justin turner has already earned like half of his contract in the first half of the first season uh, well the turner
0: so this turner example is is a great segue to this sort of questions i wanted to, to um as it, as it represents an example of of the question i was going to ask you which is some some deals in the last year you know since you last conducted this that have uh forced you to either rethink the the concepts you know the, your methodology a little bit because I know in the introduction you wrote that there are fewer minor leaguers now, okay. and I don't know if that's b- based off of just the reality of the players or methodology. And then specifically, like players than like w- situations like the Turner signing, where the league has kind of has made it sort of non-negotiable where you are going to rank someone because they've the market has been pretty clear about how, how to what degree it values. For example, Justin Turner.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think if we were to look back at kind of the player valuation over the last year, since I published this list, I think like the moves that probably have had the biggest impact on perception of trade value for various players, the Chris Sale trade, uh, the Adam Eaton trade, um, and then obviously the free agent signings of last winter, right? Mm-hmm. Anyone who was a free agent, we had a pretty good understanding of what their market value was. Theoretically, this they signed for something close to it. Um, doesn't mean their value couldn't change. Like Daniel Murphy's market value a year and a half ago was thirty-nine million dollars or forty million dollars, whatever it was. He got um, it's clearly more than that now. So it's not like, like Justin Turner's value has gone up since he signed his contract. Has it gone up enough for him to dramatically exceed what the market thought he was six months ago? I'm, I in the end, I've said no. I deferred to the teams on this one. Um, but I think like the Sale and Eaton and trades were probably the ones that had the most direct impact on um, perception of player value because you know the interesting thing is like there's there's um, diametrically opposed in terms of kinds of players right like Chris Sales an elite premium player with three years of control um, so not like a rental or anything but you know less years than a guy like Eaton Uh, and Eaton, a lesser player, but lower salaries, five years of control, and the Nationals were bidding on both, and they settled for Eaton after they lost out on sale. So we have essentially a win now buyer, uh, choosing between two things, and saying the price is too high for Chris Sale, but we'll pay 85 or 90% of the Chris Sale price for Adam Eaton, who no one, no one thinks Adam Eaton is anywhere near as good as Chris Sale, but the value that they placed on him was almost the same, or pretty close to it, uh, because of price and years of control, and I think that helps us inform how even win now teams see major league players these days.
0: Okay, so let's so let's return just briefly to the Turner, uh, the Turner deal. What, do do you have a sense of what it was that, uh, w- what what the I guess the differences between what the numbers have suggested about Turner in recent years and what the reality was in terms of his ability to extract. Cash money out of
1: major league teams? Yeah. I mean, so some of it's age, right? Like, I think the thing that we've noticed uh, in free agency uh, lately is that teams are just not willing to spend on older players anymore. So we basically had the same conversation about Ben Zobrist two years ago. Ben Zobrist right, is a right. really good player. Everyone in baseball wanted him. There were, like, 15 teams who wanted Ben Zobrist. he signed for $56 million. Like, everyone agreed that Ben Zobrist was awesome. And he and he couldn't get more... You know, he got half of Pablo Sandoval money because he was 34, 35. And now we're seeing, like, a couple years into the contract, Ben isn't having a very good year this year. And so I think, you know, with Justin Turner's health issues... um The fact that he's 33, 34, um, I think there's probably still a little bit of skepticism about the bat, maybe less so now that he's had this monster first half, but over the winter, you know, like this was still maybe more of a good hitter than a great hitter. I don't think people look at Justin Turner, um, and see him as a, you know, a Freddie Freeman or, uh, you know, one of those guys. He's a, is it
0: because they don't, is it because, you know, like with the case with Freeman, like he's like a hulking guy and you just don't see the, you don't see where it's coming from when you look at,
1: I mean, Justin Turner is a you know he's a utility infielder for most of his career, who has turned himself into a line drive doubles machine. But he's still not a huge guy. He still doesn't hit forty home runs. It's hard line drive contact. Um, You know, and obviously he's really good. I think anyone at this point who doesn't think Justin Turner is a good hitter is is out to out to lunch. But. I think it's harder for teams to look at a utility infielder who reinvented himself at 30 or 31 uh, and say, oh, man, that guy's awesome. The league didn't do this with Daniel Murphy either. Like, Daniel Murphy made the same transformation and was amazing for the last three months headed into free agency, went to postseason, hit homers off everybody. Kershaw, Zach Reinke, Arietta, Like, he we went bananas that postseason. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he hit the free agent market and teams were like, nope, you're still a slapping around second baseman who isn't very good defensively. We don't buy into the power. Here's a three-year contract, and, and like even the Nationals who ended up with Daniel Murphy, he was like their sixth choice, right? Like they tried to get all these other second basemen. Like no one really wanted Daniel Murphy that winter, and so I think teams have very rooted beliefs about what players are, and it takes a very long time for those to change.
0: Yeah, and just to 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 give a sense of how good Justin Turner has been, uh, you don't find him among the the leaders on the Fangraphs Wins Above Replacement leaderboard because he has not amassed sufficient. Uh, Plate appearances to appear there, but if you re, if you remove the the plate appearance minimum, uh, he appears fifth. So mm-hmm. he's he's producing wins at a rate, I suppose it's probably only rivalled by Aaron Judge. I don't necessarily know what it is like per hundred plate appearances, but and and, and this is a, so that's one point. Another point is, and again, this is uh, this is another brief digression. <clears throat> the top ten right now in terms of war in the majors, at least among position players, is a very funny list. Uh, because that top ten includes Bryce Harper and Carlos Correa, for example, uh, both former number one overall picks. It also includes Anthony Rendon, who I think was – I don't know if he was in the top ten, but he was he was a celebrated college player. He I was picked sixth, yeah. Okay, yeah. And the only concern really for Rendon was health, yeah. I think. He the would he would, would be. have
1: been 1-1 one, one if he was healthy, yeah.
0: <clears throat> the other players in this list, however, are – I mean, two and three are Jose Altuve and Mookie Betts. right who were essentially non-prospects. I mean, Betts, I think, made a couple lists in his last year um, just because he had so thoroughly dominated in the minor leagues. Uh, Justin Turner, who wasn't really even valued as a player when he was a major leaguer. Right. And then Jose Ramirez is eighth yeah. on the list. Yeah. Uh, it is a, it a,
1: Like two years ago, I was making fun of you for liking Jose Ramirez. That was like an annual part of the podcast.
0: Yeah, just two years ago. Look, look what happens, yeah. Dave Cameron. Oh, yeah. Um, so, in any way, I suppose. Uh, well, it's kind of an exciting time, I, guess, I suppose, for those among us who take some pleasure in uh, fringe prospects, because uh, we happen to live in a, a moment when certain of those fringe prospects have, uh, you know, transformed into the best players in the major <laughs> leagues. So that's good. Um, Okay, so we discussed Turner. You started to mention. Uh, you mentioned Sale, of course. Yeah. Um, now the Sale trade is interesting because it was uh, one of the best pitchers in the major leagues for one of the very top prospects, and those are the feature pieces. And, I, and Michael Kopek also went from uh, Boston, Chicago, and he right. was uh, he's not nothing
1: either. Yeah, sure. Two valuable pieces. Now,
0: so what? So what did that do for your for how you might uh, conceive of of the uh, top one hundred series? It, whether it's again
1: in terms of methodology or these specific players. I mean, I think, you know, without sounding like I'm tooting my own horn here, I think the Sale trade um, confirmed that we're not too far off the boat here. Like, we're we're doing an okay job of estimating trade value. Because uh, I think last summer, when there was uh, trade speculation about Chris Sale, and uh, I was asked specifically, like, what would the Red Sox have to give up to get him? I estimated at that point that it would take something like Yuan Mangata, Michael Kopech, and throw-ins. And then he was traded for, like, that exact package. Um, so, you know, I don't think that we... We're surprised by the, the the return that Sale got. Um, I think it's instructive to say, like, look, this is an elite, premium pitcher under control for three years at you know hugely discounted salaries. He's making what like, twelve million dollars a year or something. He's worth forty million a year, forty five million a year. So you know he's making a fraction of what he's worth. It's not a rental. He's an elite player. And even still, I mean, I know, like, a, there was a decent amount of conversation in the comments about, like, Jackie Bradley Jr. and Jake Lamb and so It's these, like, these guys aren't stars. They seem like, yeah, yeah, I would trade that guy for Chris Sale in a heartbeat. And when the Red Sox uh, were asked to put Jackie Bradley Jr. in a Chris Sale trade, they said no. And when they were asked to put Andrew Benintendi in the Chris Sale trade, they said no. And no one else stepped up with a comparable young player that the White Sox could stick right on their major league roster Chris Sale was a, you know, I think last year he ranked 12th on the trade value list or something. He was pretty high. Um, he's going to be in the top 25 or 30 this year. Um, so still a very valuable asset. And the White Sox couldn't get a major league player for him. They had to settle for, you know, settle, you know, the best prospect in baseball. But they, you know, in a, in a Mancata they got a guy with no real present value who still has a lot of risk. And Kopech obviously has a lot of risk. They took a, they took some gambles on this trade, and they could end up trading Chris Sale for nothing if both of these guys don't end up working out so i think um the perception that these elite players are going to return these like herschel walker style i'm gonna get nine guys i'm gonna get your like <laughs> two best young players and five best prospects like it doesn't happen like the the, the the uh difference in value uh that teams perceive is not large enough to drive i think what fans expect these returns to be
0: yeah, so why why wouldn't uh, I don't know maybe this is just not going anywhere with it but uh why wouldn't the Red Sox give up Ben Attendee or, or Jackie Bradley? It's just a question of valuing those players too much. I mean, yeah, I mean I think to,
1: if you're trying to win, most teams maybe you could maybe put like last year's Cubs as like an exception to this or maybe the current Dodgers or something like that, but like besides those teams, most teams don't have enough good players to have talent everywhere. And so if you're talking about, okay, I can add a Chris sale, that obviously makes my rotation better, but then I lose a Jackie Bradley, okay, so I lose a three-win outfielder and I get a five-win pitcher. So I'm two wins better. That's nice, but it's not the kind of upgrade you're trying to make, right? Like, these teams want the five-win upgrade. They want to get the full value of the star they're acquiring, especially if you're giving up a lot of long-term value, and, uh, so when they look at it, I think most teams say, look, I'm happy to give up significant future value, guys who could be really great players for you, franchise players down the line, but they don't help me today. Because what I'm really trying to do, if I'm trying to make one of these win now moves, where I'm giving up a lot of future value, I want to, I want to not just make a marginal improvement. And you know, it sounds stupid to say like Chris Sale is only a marginal improvement over Jackie Bradley Jr., but that's kind of the reality, right? Like Chris Sale is an excellent pitcher. Jackie Bradley Jr. is a good, not great center fielder. And the difference between them is like two or three wins a year. And so you certainly want that those two hard. or three wins.
0: Yeah, that's that's hard to... I can, that, that, It is hard to fit in one's head, though, I think, sometimes. Yeah, and I, I agree. I think this is one of the disconnects
1: that, that um, our, makes well, our a challenging our dumb human,
0: Yeah, our human minds are not very good at understanding the difference, I think, between the best and pretty
1: good. Yeah, and, and I think, it, so like, one of the probably the more controversial parts of this year's list are that three guys who ranked in the top 15 last year and are considered what three of the ten best players in baseball right now in uh, Josh Donaldson Manny Machado and Bryce Harper they're not on the list <laughs> like none of them made the top 50 and they were comments in the, in the 41 to 50 like you really think that like jake lamb or aaron nola or robbie ray would bring back more in return than bryce harper because bryce harper is a monster right like yeah. everyone agrees like bryce harper is one of the very best players in the world top three top four whatever he's in, he's insanely good he's 24 years old like everyone wants bryce harper but the problem is, like, you get Bryce Harper for a year and a half, and then he goes to the Yankees or the Dodgers for five hundred million dollars, whatever it's going to be. You have basically no chance of re-signing him. So you're looking at him as like not quite a rental, but almost a rental. And same thing with Donaldson and Machado. Like these guys are elite, fantastic players who will give you, you know, maybe two or three wins the rest of twenty seventeen, and then six or seven wins if you're if they're healthy next year. Or maybe more like five or six, but somewhere in that five to seven win range next year, you're buying like nine wins over the next year and a half. Those are super valuable wins. You will pay a lot for nine wins. They also These guys also make like $20 million a year. I think Harper's locked in at 21 next year. Donaldson might get like 22 or something in arbitration. So they're not like, you know, free. So you have to also consider their salary. Obviously, you know, if you can get nine wins for, you know, $30 million once you include half their salary from this year, that's, you know, a great deal. Everyone would do that. But then you start looking at like, oh, I also have to give up you know my number two starting pitcher who makes three million dollars next year or five million dollars Whatever Robbie Ray's gonna make it an arbitration his first year probably closer to three or four so if you say like a guy like Robbie Ray who certainly got a lot of risk you know could blow out his arm at any time maybe you just want to take the sure bet with Harper but then you look at it and say what could I get for a controllable 26 year old 25 year old starting pitcher running a 12 strikeout per nine um, you know left-handed pitcher with a great curveball who's looking like he could become one of the better starting pitchers of baseball, under control for three more years after this one. Um, I think as much as it doesn't sound like Robbie Ray should be in Bryce Harper's class, when you start looking at cost, years of control, teams have really shifted towards looking at the long term and saying, you know what, I might be better off with three low-cost years of Robbie Ray than I am putting all my eggs in one basket and hoping Bryce Harper stays healthy and carries me that one year and then losing him for nothing. Let me
0: ask you uh, about a couple of trades that might have also informed uh, this uh, series, or at the very least, um, will uh, are are, are sort of trades people will think about when they're reading this series. And uh, part of that, uh, one of them is the uh, Araldis Chapman deal, yeah. uh, The the Cubs uh, acquisition of Araldis Chapman last year, which a deal which included among others, um, Gliber Torres, who's uh, definitely a top one hundred prospect. Um, and then also the Andrew Miller deal, uh, Cleveland acquired him f- uh, in a deal that, that included Clint Frazier, among others. Right. Uh, it, that's the same Clint Frazier, of course, who's now starting in left field for the Yankees, um, at least for the time being. Um <clears throat> um when people say well wh- what could you get for Bryce Harper what could you get for a, a rental whether it's a, a year and a half or just a, a half a year as a, you know as was the case for Chapman well in that case it was one of the organization's top prospects how does that deal inform what we're seeing here
1: yeah, so I think relievers are the most challenging part of this. And so I put in the honor mention section, like I think I mentioned Miller and Roberto Osuna and Felipe Rivero. Some of these like really good relievers who are also under control for several more years. I think Rivero's got four more years after this one. Um, Osuna maybe three or four. And these are, you know, some of the best relief pitchers in baseball. Um, how we look at what the Chapman and Miller trades, uh, returned from last year and then, try and extrapolate that to, you know, maybe not quite as good of a reliever, but a reliever with significantly more control, um, it's pretty easy, especially when we're talking about, you know, Adam Eaton versus Chris Sale, to just extend that to relief pitchers as well and say, look, you know, Rivero isn't quite Chapman, but he's, you know, making $2 million and not you know, $15 million, whatever Chapman was making in his final year of arbitration. Um, And he's got four more years, so therefore Rivera is significantly more valuable. And then the the Chapman package was amazing, so Rivera is more valuable than that. Maybe he should be on the list, and, you know, he certainly got consideration. But I think the reality is when teams look at relief pitchers, they just don't trust their future value, right? Like, they they look at basically every reliever and be like, you're really good now. Um, Maybe you'll be really good next year after that. Who knows? And I think that's one of the reasons the Andrew Miller and Rolls-Chapman packages were so similar. Even though I think, you know, Miller's at least as good as Chapman, I would say better. Um, but they're at least similar, right? And Miller had a couple of extra years of control. He didn't bring back that much more than Chapman did. Maybe not anymore, depending on what you think of Frazier and Torres. Because I don't think teams are, um, willing to put a lot of stock in the future value of relief pitchers. They're just too volatile. And, um, I think, there, are You know, when you look at a hitter, or a little less with a starting pitcher, but to some degree, the starting pitchers can at least be trusted more than relievers. Teams will say, "Hey, you know, I really want those years of control. I want this guy as a, a foundational piece I can build around with relief pitchers." I think they're just looking at it, and be like, "How much can you help me this year and maybe next year?" Like Justin Wilson will probably bring back the best return at the trade deadline of any reliever this, this year because he's under control for next year too. Teams are going to take that into account. But I don't think that if Justin Wilson was under contract for five years, he would bring back significantly more than he will just through next year um, because teams don't necessarily think that relievers are going to last five years.
0: Well, that's – I mean, it's true. And, of course, the, this uh, echoes with what, something we already know, which is uh, that relief pitcher valuation is is uh, a strange thing. Yeah. Um, and of course, and I, I know. Here's a question. Do relievers experience more than any other position? Do relievers experience the greatest um, increase in trade value between the preseason? And the trade deadline?
1: Absolutely. There's no question okay. about it. Yeah. So, like, if you look at the re- for price for relief pitchers in July, it is so much higher than the price for relief pitchers mm-hmm. in, uh, October, November, December, whatever it is when, when they sign us free agents. Because, uh, the value that a reliever can have for you in October is most of their value. Like, obviously you need a good bullpen in the regular season as well. But the way you can deploy a kind of a multi-relief ace, multi-inning relief face is so dramatically different in October. Um, that once you're pretty sure you're getting to the postseason, that guy becomes one of your most important players. And so if you're like the Washington Nationals right now who have really high playoff odds and a bad bullpen, (laughs) like Mm -hmm. they are so heavily incentivized to go not just get like a closer, but they need like three or four new relievers probably. And so if you're the Nationals, you know you're going to the postseason, you know the value these guys can have in October – you're going to pay so much more because you're now basically certain to get to the postseason than you were before the year. Because before the year, you didn't know that your guys were going to play well. You didn't know Bryce Harper was going to bounce back. You didn't know the Mets were going to implode. You didn't know that your division was going to be an abomination that you could just run away with. <laughs> so, you know, your uh, willingness to pay for that October performance, which is where a huge amount of reliever value lies, uh, has changed dramatically. And so, therefore, so does the price you'll pay for them.
0: Yeah, it is. It is interesting that the sort of shadow that a reliever can cast. I mean, it's uh, obviously uh, the most recent postseason was uh, a great example of that. Here's here's one question I have. Uh, obviously, uh, we've spoken, you know, on, off and on about uh, reliever usage and how they're deployed, what in what inning and for how long, right? Um, and frequently teams have been conservative with how they've used their closers, their Capital C closers, which is you know ninth inning, zero outs, et cetera. But I was I was thinking that. To the point that you're making, it does seem as though if you can, if you reach the middle of a season and uh, you you yourself, you know, your club does not necessarily have uh, chances of making, very good chances of making the postseason, if you have a pitcher who's already uh, accustomed to multi-inning appearances, who's already accustomed to entering the game in the sixth or seventh inning and will therefore be incredibly valued come the postseason, it seems as though you'd be able to get um, you because there'd be no there'd be no work for the acquiring team to do they wouldn't have to condition a new player or one of their own relievers you know to they wouldn't have to put those players in a position with which they were uncomfortable it seems like that would greatly increase the trade
1: value of a relief pitcher yeah, is that, is that, I, I think that's right. Um, and I think but it,
0: it seems like an incentive that that teams do not necessarily seem to be incentivized by, or it seems like a like a source of value that teams don't necessarily seem to be incentivized by.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this is the thing: is relievers are weird, right? Like teams don't trust them. Right? So you could basically look at every reliever who's a free agent over the winter and say, this guy's value is going to increase by fifty percent at the trade deadline. <laughs> we should just sign him and then sell him in six months because his value is going to go up. But relievers are so volatile that, like, the Rockies thought they had identified a really good left-handed reliever in Mike Dunn. And so they gave him $19 million. Mike Dunn stinks this year. And they probably couldn't give Mike Dunn away right now. Um, And I think that there's so much skepticism about relief pitching in general. And, you know, maybe some allure that you can find relief pitching really easily. That Like, um, maybe you say, okay... Yeah, I don't need to give this reliever $10 million a year and then assume I can trade him in July because there's some risk if he's bad. I can go get this, like, you know, failed starting pitcher, Archie Bradley, or something like that, and stick him in the bullpen and have a really great reliever who I had now control for five more years. Um, and I think there are teams who would prefer to go that direction so then they just don't bid on free agent relievers even if they're rebuilding because, you know, they would rather... Find a young player, stick him in that role, than to sign a veteran free agent who they have to move uh, that summer. At the, yeah, well,
0: it's interesting because uh, it did seem as though another team besides the Rockies uh, that was sort of uh, uh, relying on the possibility that um, two of their free agent signings would be easy to deal. The, the, the deadline was the Marlins, right? They got Janichi Tazawa and Brad Ziegler, right? Two accomplished relievers, you right. know, and, and actually pretty, uh, div- uh, pretty. Uh, consistent so far as relievers go. And, uh, I don't know if you've looked at their numbers. Yeah, recently, they're not good. But, uh, <laughs> neither of them are having a particularly good season. Yeah. Uh, and, and they're uncharacteristically bad seasons, those. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, relievers difficult. That's Relievers the, uh, are hard, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, I was going to ask you about minor leaguers. Uh, you said that you've included fewer in this year's list. I don't know if that's a function of, again, if it's sort of, uh, if that's a conceptual, um,
1: Change in your part, or if it's just the actual identities of the minor leaguers? Of it's, it's definitely both. I mean, I do think like this minor league crop is not as good as, uh, especially at the top. Like you know, there's good good prospects. Like nothing against Amed Rosario or you know, Glaber Torres or Rafael Devers. Like these are really good prospects. I, I like I like Vladimir Guerrero Junior. A lot. I think he's gonna be a monster. Like the, these are guys that every organization would love to have. But I don't think there's anyone you can look at and say, you know, that's Chris Bryant, uh, that's Carlos Correa, or that's Corey Seager. Like this kind of like you know. Uh, 20-year-old crushing AAA and playing up the middle with good defense and good baseball. Like, we've just gotten spoiled the last few years with, like, these, like, monsters who just are, you know, um, some of the best prospects we've seen in a really long time who are, you know, absolutely major league ready from the time they get to the big leagues and turn into stars right away. Um, You know, even, like, you could throw a Trey Turner in there, right? Like, Trey Turner uh, wasn't necessarily thought of that way, but got to the big leagues and just became an absolute stud from day one. I don't think we have that guy this year, like uh Mancada's got a thirty percent strikeout rate in uh Triple a and doesn't really have a position yet and uh you know Torres looks like a nice player, but you know they were gonna move him to third base and no one really knows if the power is gonna profile there um you know Rosario has gotten a lot of hype because the Mets are bad and the Mets need things to hope for but he's not hitting that well considering he's playing in Las Vegas in the PCL Um, you know these guys are guys who have you know good long-term outlooks who if you stuck in the major leagues right now might not be that good and so I I think what we don't have this year is kind of that you know not only do I have a lot of future value but I'm a three-win player today and those Mm. are the guys that teams are just like no like you know, you can't have Trey Turner. I don't care who you're offering me. I've got a three-win player with monster long-term upside. I'm keeping that guy. Um, I hadn't I inspected uh, Trey
0: Turner's uh, player page in a little bit. His, he's really uh, having it's a, it's such a solid season. It has like a real. I don't know. If, I mean, I think Bill James. I mean, he discussed this with greater eloquence than I will. But the degree to which you can see a narrative in a player's numbers. Yeah. If you look at his numbers, he seems to have a very mature stat line. It's interesting because it's not – he's not benefiting from any extremes except for the fact that he's a great base runner. Yeah. Um, Perhaps. uh, But what do you think? He's just – he's just not – he's not striking out very much. You know, but he's not like – it's not like he makes crazy contact. really good
1: across-the-board skills. Yeah. 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 I guess he's – He's good at everything. He doesn't walk enough, but, you know, whatever. He's the 23-year-old shortstop.
0: Right, and he's also playing uh, – yes, and he's playing shortstop decently. I think yeah. I mean, there might have been some question about his ability to stick at shortstop maybe when he came to the majors. Is that right?
1: Yeah, but I mean, they moved him to center field uh, last year because that's where they had the need. Um, but I think they've been adamant all along. They thought Trey Turner could be at least an average, maybe above average shortstop. He's never going to be like, you know, Anderson Simmons or something. But they thought he could stick, and that was why they moved him back to short and made the Adam Eaton trade. Is I think the Nationals have been confident all along. Like, this guy's a major league shortstop, and he's, you know, a pretty good hitter, and he runs like crazy. Yeah, he's, he runs very
0: well, OK, uh, let's see those. Are my, oh, yes. Uh, and w- uh, one final question I had for you um, <clears throat> was the influence of opt outs on this uh, on this series. And the, the, I suppose start with a discussion of opt outs and Clayton Kershaw, but then uh, maybe uh, how this sort of thing applies more generally.
1: Yeah, I mean, Kershaw is the one guy who basically would have made this list, uh, or at least would have been very strongly considered for this list, uh, if his contract was structured differently. But he's got a poison pill in his contract that says if, if he's traded at any time, he becomes a free agent at the end of the season he's traded in. So like if he was traded tomorrow, Clayton Kershaw would be a free agent this winter. That makes him like a three-month rental. As great as Clayton Kershaw is, teams are not giving up any of these kinds of guys for a three-month rental. They're just not doing it. They don't. I mean, it could be baber than his prime. <laughs> like teams Wait, is, not.
0: That, is, is that is a for a play? If you're a player and then you're looking to install something in your contract, yeah. you know, it will be of some benefit to you. What he has in there, the the capacity to become uh, a free agent, uh, to, you know, to opt out of his contract to become a free agent if he's traded. Is that, is that somehow, is that even more friendly to him than a no trade clause? Absolutely.
1: Like, this is like a, you can't trade me clause, essentially. Like, it just kills any interest from any other suitor. To get him to negotiate that out, like, to buy out a no trade clause, you usually have to give a guy, like, pick up his team option for his final year of his deal, or just give him $5 million in cash or something. Like, usually, guys, not always, but guys will usually waive their no trade if they're just handed a little bit of money. Clayton Kershaw's incentive <laughs> to become a free agent this winter is so dramatic. You'd have to give him, like, $50 million or something. Like, this is, this is the most player-friendly uh, stipulation in any contract in baseball. Do you know who Clayton Kershaw's agent is off the top of your head? Uh, Casey Close, I think, with Excel. Okay, yeah, that sounds right. I'm not 100% sure, but I think that's right. Excel Sports Made it. It says yeah, JD K- Smart. K- but K- I Casey Close it. is the main guy to Excel. Yeah. So. Uh,
0: that's it. That's smart. Are there other players who have one just like that? Do you know to the best of your No. Players? So I think
1: like I think this actually dated back to the dead Coletti regime. And Coletti was um, a little bit infamous for giving out some generous some the, like these contracts that weren't not like just overpays, but like they didn't make any sense for the team. So like, other um, like Alex Guerrero had a contract like when he was signed out of Cuba, he got like twenty eight million dollars for four years, even though he wasn't any good. And then he had like a clause that was like he couldn't be sent to the minor leagues. Like they couldn't, they were not allowed to option to the minors. So they get Alex Guerrero and pay him seven million dollars a year. Then they realize like this guy is not a major league player, and we can't do anything about it. He's we, we either eat the thirty million or the twenty eight million dollars, or we play him. Mm-hmm. And oh, so they ended up just cutting him, and he's out of baseball now. In part because he had this contract that wouldn't let him be sent to the minor leagues.
0: That, did, that doesn't, uh, I can't really think of any many situations where that has worked out. I suppose, didn't Steven Strasburg, back when this was possible, didn't he have something where he needed to be, he was given a big league contract, I think?
1: Yeah, so like before they made the change, in the, not this CBA, but the prior CBA, he used to be able to sign a major league contract out of the draft, and like the very best prospects some years would do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Delman Young got a major league contract, and like, there were times when this would actually work against the, the player, uh, because like I think in Delman Young's case, like, because when you sign a major league contract, Contract, you have to be put on the forty man roster, which means you have to be optioned to the minor leagues. You only get three or sometimes four option years. So if you sign a major league contract at eighteen, that means you have to stick in the big leagues at twenty one or twenty-two, but more likely twenty-one. And I think in Delman Young's case, he got rushed to the big leagues and uh, could not get more minor league seasoning because of his contract situation. And so Major League Baseball was like, let's not do that anymore. No more Major League contracts for draft picks.
0: Yeah, William O'Pena, I think, was another example Yeah, like I think
1: he, he wasn't a draft pick, but he, he, got right. a, he got a Major League contract as a 16-year-old when he was an international free agent.
0: Yeah, it is interesting to think of someone like William O'Pena. Uh, the physical talent. Obviously, okay. there are guys... Uh, I mean, they're guys who who have physical talent who have necessarily succeeded, but uh, he had a lot of he had a lot of natural power.
1: He had top shelf power, and not a lot else.
0: Yeah, he's an interesting player. Uh, okay, yeah, uh, <clears throat> okay. So that's opt outs. There was a sort of rash of opt out or opt outs included in contracts. I think maybe. The offseason before last, so there may be a continue this past
1: offseason. Do I pay attention? Not always. Dave Cameron. Yeah. I mean, the uh, opt-outs have become a thing for premium free agents, but the thing you'll notice is there aren't a lot of guys who've signed free agent deals on this contract or right. on this list, like uh, Jason Hayward's yeah. not on the trade value list. He's got an opt-out. Elvis Andrus uh, has a couple of opt-outs in his deal. He wasn't a free agent deal, but it was a, a Scott Boris extension that got paid like a Boris or like a free agent deal. So a lot of the guys who have opt-outs got opt-outs because they had a lot of leverage, and therefore, when you have a lot of leverage, you don't necessarily sign a team-friendly contract, so they don't usually appear here.
0: Have we talked about measuring, intending to measure agents in terms of uh, value-added to, you know, like like value-plus or something like that? I yeah, it's really it. hard. I mean, yeah. like The the yeah.
1: reality is, like, uh, Scott Boris has the best players, so we can look at it and be like, oh, Scott Boris gets the most money for his clients. Well, that's also because he has the best players. <laughs> so, right. uh, so trying to figure out what, like, what would have Jason Hayward got with a different agent? I don't know. Yeah. Well, it seems like, uh, it seems like,
0: uh, Casey Close, et cetera, they, they did a pretty good job of securing Clayton Kershaw. Yeah. Uh, by maybe dealing with a, what, maybe with a general manager who wasn't as.
1: But I don't know how much how like, how like, much can you reward the Casey Close and Excel for saying, good job taking advantage of Ned Coletti when he was the only guy they could negotiate with. <laughs> like, right? Like, it's not Kershaw wasn't a free agent. He was property of the Dodgers, and the Dodgers happened to be uh, run by a guy who gave out silly contracts.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess they benefited from right. having a really yeah. good pitcher who was on a yeah. silly contract.
1: Have an all-time <laughs> great pitcher and then have a GM run the team of that all-time great pitcher who doesn't necessarily understand how to build a roster. And then uh, okay. do really well
0: for yourself. Anything I've – do you think I've neglected to ask you that is very important about this? We're, we've, we've hit our time, so. Yeah.
1: I mean, I, you know, there's obviously more to talk about in terms of like the top ten, but we can discuss that next week. We'll do that next week. Yeah, provided
0: uh, my wife has not given birth to a child. Yeah, try, try to tell her to not do that. <laughs> at, at a certain point uh, – well, of course, uh, we've discussed this sort of uh, what, risk-reward threshold uh, for – for women, because I think that for some time uh, my wife has been uh been a little bit trepidatious about the the prospect of the, you know the pain yeah. and uh, associated with the with labor and then the, you know directly after you know the physical discomfort, yeah. but at a certain point, the physical discomfort leading up to the birth, I think it's uh she's becoming much more comfortable with the idea of labor now that she's got this <laughs> this, this these no one I feel that like this is very much under uh addressed is the the ways that the uter, uh, uter uterus uteruses the ways that uterus no fetuses the ways that fetuses uh 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 torture mothers mothers yeah. to be yeah they like to kick and pound and uh, it is bitten. crazy yeah. on the organs yeah. and the ribs it's yeah. insane
1: yeah Ugh. yeah i'm uh, i am not sad that I don't get to experience childbirth
0: yeah, I don't know. Maybe, uh, I'm sure something magical does happen, but it's, it's <laughs> it comes with pain. You're running the cost benefit analysis, yeah. is, uh, <laughs> I think it's probably one of those things where if you if it's inevitable, then you kind of look at it directly and you say, "All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna take whatever right. benefits I can get out of this." But right. if you if it's the options, like, do you want this thing, this side <laughs> thing this big to come out of this <laughs> part of your body? Or, yeah. Nah. Mm-hmm.
1: Having a pass. I'll turn it down. I'm gonna outsource that to, uh, to my wife.
0: Uh, yeah, Callie says that she thinks, and I don't know if she's stealing this from someone. That if men were the ones who given birth, that the uh, just be in, in the generalizing broadly, yeah. men you know tend to be a little bit more uh, streamlined about things i'm not saying it's better just saying a little more logical streamlined And men would have created a different process by which to get <laughs> it. that's probably true yeah we, we would have that. some kind of
1: tool to
0: <laughs> there would definitely be a tool yeah. and you, you could you could buy it on, on, the, <laughs> right, yeah. on, the, on the every door. black friday it <laughs> would be half <laughs> off
1: at lowe's
0: <laughs> right it'd be a rash of births <laughs> right. yeah. uh, okay all right that's good you've done it dave Cameron. thank you so much thank you All right, that has been Managing Editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.